Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So, guys, I feel so lonely here without Shane. Yeah, I mean, do we know where he is? Tahiti? He's in some undisclosed location. He's scooping a scoop, digging up dirt, <laughs> jet setting. Uh, you know, the Trump administration is shameless, but we're shameless. <laughs> well, I hope he's out there draining the swamp somewhere. Without yeah. shame, but with great aplomb. <laughs> Our next He'll be host back is next aplomb. week, though. Yeah, that's, wh- that's what they want us to think. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the shameless edition. I am not Shane Harris, intrepid reporter. I'm Tamara Wittes, policy scholar, a.k.a. Swamp Creature. Shane is away at an undisclosed location doing his intrepid reporting thing, but he'll be back next week. So I'm here in the Jungle Studio today with the intrepid and always engaging Quinta Jurassic, Lawfare's deputy managing editor. Hello. And joining us through the wonders of the internet is Benjamin Wittes. Ben, are you in a place with snow or without snow? I am in a place with snow, but it's not undisclosed. I am at the University of Virginia Law School. Well, hello, UVA. Uh, Today on Rational Security, three topics. Um, First, what we've learned and what we still haven't learned about Cambridge Analytica, Facebook, and the 2016 campaign. Maybe we'll do a poll on whether we're going to delete our Facebook accounts. I think Uh, we should actually put out a Facebook quiz where we gather information about whether people are going to delete their Facebook accounts. Not not only whether people are going to delete their Facebook accounts, but whether people and 200 of their closest friends are going to delete their Facebook accounts. That's so meta, guys. Uh, But I think it's a really good idea. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if Mark Zuckerberg is busily scraping that data from everybody's on Facebook discussions of Facebook right now. Uh, We'll also talk about Putin's re-election and Trump's congratulation and the whole fuss over leaking the president's briefing papers. And finally, we're going to talk about deals, big deals, great, amazing, expensive deals between the U.S. and the Saudis, and perhaps between uh, folks from the United Arab Emirates and friends of theirs in Washington. So let's start with Facebook. Um, Personally, Quinta, I'm not that interested in whether Mark Zuckerberg is sorry, uh, but I am interested in whether this is still a problem for us as we head into the midterm elections. What do you think? Yeah, so the Cambridge Analytica stuff is a, it's an interesting controversy in that we've actually known a lot of it since maybe 2015. Um, The Intercept actually did a report on this maybe six months ago. They had most of the New York Times' story um, with the exception that I think they they said that Facebook had picked up or that the researcher Cambridge, at Cambridge Analytica had picked up 20 million accounts and it was 30 million. Um, but it's one more example of how Facebook was really used in a potentially really dangerous way in the election. Um, previously, we were talking about Facebook's ad targeting mechanisms. Um, regarding the Internet Research Agency and their use of Facebook advertisements to uh, allegedly sow discord, although we don't actually know how effective they were in doing that. 
Um, and now what we're talking about is something different, which is how Facebook um, used to, although it no longer does, allow app developers to basically hook into their platform and scoop up enormous amounts of data from users, perhaps without those users really realizing how much information they were giving away. So in this case, um, Alexander Kogan, who presented himself as an academic researcher, developed this quiz app, um, then paid people on Amazon's Mechanical Turk platform essentially a dollar an hour to fill out the quiz app. And through doing that, just sort of hoovered up an enormous amount of not only their information through Facebook, but the information of all their Facebook friends and ended up with just an enormous amount of data. So to to be clear, that's actually, that is how the platform was supposed to work. That is how developers used Facebook and all that was above board. The part that Facebook is complaining about is the fact that um, Kogan then gave that information to Cambridge Analytica, which used it for what they called psychographic targeting, um, <laughs> to then hand over to the Trump campaign and allegedly help with their campaign advertisements. And Facebook essentially is saying, that was a violation. We didn't know that they were using this for campaign purposes. We just thought this was research. And what's more, when we found out that they had done that and told them to delete the data, they lied to us in saying that they deleted it when they actually held on to it for the next two years. Um, so all this is a long way of saying that this scandal, such as it is, is really hard to explain because it's a combination of Facebook's platform being used arguably as it was developed, exactly what it's doing, what it was supposed to be used for, and an example of someone doing that, sort of taking that and taking it just one hop farther, right? Um, using the data that was gathered through a totally above board process for a purpose that wasn't communicated to Facebook. So the way that Facebook is explaining this is saying, you know, we're, we're totally outraged that Cambridge Analytica snookered us into getting all this data under false pretenses. What the people criticizing Facebook are saying is the problem isn't that they did that under false pretenses. The problem is that you let them do that in the first place and that you had such weak protections for all this data that someone was essentially able to just walk in the front door and scoop all this up and walk away with it. Um, in terms of what it means for the upcoming elections, it's genuinely hard to say because we actually don't know how effective Cambridge Analytica was. Um, they clearly talked a good game, but we've seen no evidence that their psychographic targeting is mumbo jumbo or whether it was actually effective. Um, I well, and by the way, the Cambridge Analytica itself is still claiming that they didn't use the Facebook data for their micro targeting, that they only used voter data that was given to them by the Trump campaign and the RNC. So they deny that this whole Facebook hoovering of data had any impact on the 2016 election as far as they're concerned. So, so right, exactly. It's genuinely difficult to say what exactly the data was used for, if it was effective, any of that. So there are a lot of different moving pieces here. Um, I would say that the most important thing here is that we basically have an understanding of how little Facebook had a vision into or cared to have a vision into 
how people were using their platform. Um, and that you see that both in the Cambridge Analytica stuff in terms of developer use of Facebook, and you see that in the Internet Research Agency use of Facebook to target advertisements. And so that concerns me in terms of how Facebook might be used uh, for future nefarious efforts going forward, especially in the 2018 election. Um, and it also, I think it's a it's another way in which we've, we've really seen this movement toward a uh, sort of suspicion of tech platforms in the last year or so as we've started talking about election interference on Facebook and Twitter. And this is just one more step toward that. So I think that, you know, one of the problems with figuring out how to address this either as a society in terms of potential regulation or standard setting or as individuals is that Facebook has achieved a, such a critical mass in terms of the number of people who are on the platform that it's really no longer a situation where people have a choice of platform between Facebook and other things like Google+, Plus. remember that? Um, and they can just move to something that offers greater privacy protection or that promises only to use their data in very constricted ways. Everyone's sunk costs in Facebook are so high at this point that there, I th it seems to me there's a stronger argument that Facebook should be treated like a public utility at this point than there is for perhaps any other tech company. But Ben, what do you think? Well, so I think there's a lot of different issues here, and it's really worth disaggregating them. So one is the question of uh, whether uh, Facebook... Uh, you know, makes it too easy for third-party apps to uh, scoop up lots of material and then exercises too little oversight over those third-party apps in terms of how they exploit that material, right? Uh, that's a general consumer protection question and privacy law question vis-a-vis uh, -vis Facebook. The second question is uh, whether Cambridge Analytica, with Facebook kind of looking the other way, used uh, uh, such an exploitation of data in order to uh, influence the election, right? And still another question is whether and to what extent that exploitation was effective. Now, it's really easy in the current environment to say, and I suppose still another question after that, right, is to the extent that there were, uh, there was a Russian social media campaign uh, going on, which there clearly was, to what extent did that interact with whatever Cambridge Analytica was doing? Uh, so there's a, a sort of chain of, of questions that leads you you know, from a pretty routine uh, consumer privacy set of questions to a, you know, did Facebook help the Russians uh, hack the election question? And I think it's kind of important to disaggregate those questions because, uh, you know, frankly, uh, one is... Uh, you know, one we kind of understand the parameters of and one we really don't. And it may involve uh, honestly questions that are 
unanswerable at this stage since it's very hard to know uh, even if you know exactly who received information from Cambridge Analytica uh, and what the sources of those information looked like, it's very hard to know who was influenced in it in a final voting decision that is, you know, ultimately binary, right? You either, I suppose not binary because you can stay home, but you either don't show up, you vote for Donald Trump, you vote for Hillary Clinton, or in a very small percentage of places, people's cases, you vote for somebody else. But, uh, you know, the ultimate question of what the effect of it is electorally, that is a rabbit hole that is probably impossible ever to resolve. And so I think one of the really important things as we start to kind of discipline this conversation a little bit uh, it is to figure out what question we're trying to ask. I think that's right. I think it's it's really hard to wrap your head around this whole thing just because, as you say, there are so many different components. Um, and I agree that I think there's an extent to which the question of to what extent did this influence the election? To what extent could it be used to influence the future election? Is being entangled more than it should be with the question of should Facebook be working like this, right? Because those are, they're related, but they are two different questions. Yeah, no, and it, certainly if you're Mark Zuckerberg, the fact that these two things are entangled with one another is incredibly threatening because... Um, you can defend your business model uh, on the consumer protection angle. You can say, you know, yes, we're going to create better protections. We're going to create more transparency. But people who use our platform know that they get to use it for free and we get to use their data. That's the basic bargain. Um, but when it comes to the sort of hacking our democracy or enabling criminal activity, I mean, Facebook has been has moved with much greater alacrity on things like child porn because that's obviously criminal, right? Um, and, you know, the hacking our democracy stuff uh, really could threaten their ability to justify their business model at all, uh, in a political argument anyway. Um, and so I, I think that that entanglement is a huge problem for them, even if we need to disentangle analytically in terms of how we, how we want to come up with solutions to it. I one of the questions I'm trying to answer reading through all of this conflicting information about the way the Facebook platform was used and what was allowed and what was known when is, could this even happen today? I mean, Zuckerberg made a strong case yesterday that this problem has already been fixed and this could never be done today. But one of the questions I have is that it's not as though he envisioned from the outset this, that this ever could have been done. This was an innovation that others um, came up with using a platform that he created that had sufficient pl flexibility to enable that innovation. And couldn't that just happen again? Yeah, so, so I think in the narrow sense, the specific thing that happened here could not happen again because um, in 2015, I believe, Facebook permanently shut down the um, the open API, the function that allowed this app to scoop up all the user data in the first place. Um, and that's a whole different conversation. Um, there's so so no one could go in and get this data through that route now. What is true and what uh, Zuckerberg addressed in his announcement on Wednesday was that 
there may potentially be plenty of apps that held on to the data that they scooped up during that time and then didn't delete it. And so Facebook is now going to go back to them and, and sort of try to track this down to some extent. Um, in the broader sense, though, I think your point is right, that they there's a sense in which Facebook is just constantly sort of coming up with these new and great ideas and then people use them for bad things and they just kind of say, oh, gosh, who could have thought of that? I mean, there, there's this amazing and quote. And these post-facto corrections. Yeah, there's, there's this amazing quote from Zuckerberg in an interview he gave to Recode yesterday where he said, um, he's talking about regulating the platform, and he says, what I would really like to do is find a way to get our policy set in a way that reflects the values of the community. So I am not the one making these decisions. I feel fundamentally uncomfortable sitting here in California in an office making content policy decisions for people around the world. Where is the line on hate speech? I mean, who chose me to be the person who did that? I guess I have to because of where we are now, but I'd rather not. And I just, what did he think he was doing? Well, and and I have an idea. Maybe Facebook could have, you know, an elected representative body that could (laughs) represent the interests of the community. (laughs) There's a a sort of basic failure of of political philosophy. in this situation that makes you want to bang your I expect particularly you Quinta makes you want to bang your head against the wall when you read something like that. Yes. But Ben, go ahead. Look, I think you're being totally unfair. Um uh when you design a new platform uh imagining the unintended consequences of the use of a revolutionary technology is always impossible. Uh, Gutenberg did not imagine uh, the proliferation of of printed publications, books, uh, the growth of literacy that followed it, uh, or the rise of subversive literatures that followed it. Uh, And it's totally unreasonable, in my view, to expect Mark Zuckerberg as he's imagining a place where you can share pictures of your cat with your friends, or for that matter, the seamier side, decide which girls in Harvard are hot and which are not, um, which I think was the original version of Facebook, right? Um, to imagine Russian interference in the, in the election. I, I think that's just a, a, a retroactive, uh, sort of blame game. Now, it's perfectly fair to to say uh, that Facebook, you know, should be doing some imagination about the capacity for abuse. But uh, to say that, you know, to expect them to anticipate every mode of abuse that, what do they have, a billion people on the site? are going to be able to come up with, some of whom are extremely creative programmers, uh, extremely creative uh, political operatives, and are really uh, interested in data exploitations of a type that people at Facebook could never be expected to imagine, to imagine that they're proactively going to be able to control for all of those things strikes me as totally unrealistic. And by the way, that's also true of lots of other, um, you know, when when car companies design uh, Jeeps, 
we don't expect them to imagine that somebody in London is going to ram a crowd with, uh, you know, with the technology they develop. And so I, I actually quite sympathetic to, I mean, I, you're mocking him, but I'm quite sympathetic to him. He's, uh, on this anyway. I think there are some other areas where he, uh, it's less sympathetic, but, you know, that, you know, they've designed something that is, um, you know, really, uh, hard to imagine, frankly, that, uh, exactly how you would control across all the axes that we're now expecting them to exercise control. And I, I think it's a, I think what he's saying here is pretty reasonable. So some people have been pointing to a sort of original sin of congressional legislation that was passed, I guess, in the late 90s when uh, the Internet was really getting going that gave these platforms a degree of immunity from liability for content and saying that the problem here is that Congress opened the door to this um, and that it's the role of Congress now to put some fences around the way these companies um, can create technology that is vulnerable to these sorts of purposes. Do you think that that's a reasonable argument? Do you think that there is some form of regulation that might be able to put bounds on these sorts of potential harms or is it simply impossible to anticipate? Well, so look, the leading law review article on arguing exactly what you're saying is co-authored by none other than me, uh, along with Danielle Zetron. And so I do think, as a general matter, that the tech platforms have an outrageously broad liability shield. Um, and... Um, and I do think that liability shield is um, overly protective in a number of areas. Uh, I think it is a little bit hard to imagine how you would relax it in a fashion that would address, you know, issues of uh, non-libelous core political speech um, by uh, campaigns, right, which is what, um, you know, what Cambridge Analytica was doing here. Uh, so I, I think CDA 230 is a real problem. I am very much in favor of, of altering it. Uh, but I am not confident that if you altered it in the fashion that I would want to, that it would make much of a difference here. I think it could make a huge difference for things like, uh, abusive conduct toward individuals, uh, the use of the platforms by terrorists, um, uh, you know, you know, things like sextortion and, um, and revenge porn and, you know, that sort of stuff. But I'm not sure how it would make a difference in an area like this. Briefly. Yeah, um, I think I think I mostly agree with that. There, it's hard for me to see how uh, CDA 230 could affect the Cambridge Analytica stuff at all. Um, there have been some discussions. I think Tim Huang, who used to be at Google, has a paper suggesting that perhaps you could um, uh, basically create a loophole in the law so that platforms will be liable, for example, uh, for violations of FEC rules that prevent 
uh, election spending from foreign governments. So that might be one way to use that law to address uh, the Internet Research Agency ads, for example. So speaking of uh, campaign ads from foreign governments, <laughs> can we uh, can we talk a little bit about uh, Putin's reelection? The outcome, of course, was never in doubt. Uh, I suppose I was one... on tenterhooks about it. <laughs> You're watching the returns come in. I was watching the returns come in. The New York Times had their had their needle. You know, it was sitting there on a hundred percent chance of Putin's victory the whole time, but I didn't breathe easily until the official announcement came in because I really thought there was going to be a wave of, you know, pro somebody I'd never heard of sentiment coming in from the from the Russian Far East late and maybe Putin would lose. And what would we do then? Yeah. And what would you do then in terms of your martial arts challenge? I mean, exactly. You wouldn't I actually mean, fight to Alexei Navalny, who, you know, <laughs> Like, come on! Send you some check. He doesn't even. So wait a minute. This challenge is for whomever is the president of Russia. No, it's Putin. It's personal. <laughs> okay, just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. Um. So I think what what the media and a lot of commentators have been exercised about since the election took place um, is not the outcome. Uh, not the horrific conditions under which it took place in terms of intimidation of political opponents and lack of uh, free media and things like that, but rather the fact that the president of the United States uh, swiftly called Vladimir Putin not only to congratulate him, which, to be fair, previous presidents have done even in uh, tense circumstances, but to congratulate him without raising any of the issues that are creating tension in the relationship right now, including uh, Russian interference in our elections and including very recently the alleged Russian poisoning of, uh, of uh, someone in the UK um, as, as part of a sort of extra legal campaign of assassination. So um, there's a lot of controversy right now over how we know the contents of Trump's call with Putin and uh, how it went against the advice of the National Security Council staff who apparently gave him a briefing book that said in all capitals, do not congratulate. And he went ahead and congratulated. I, I confess myself a little bit underwhelmed by the uh, by the scandal that has erupted around this because, you know, of course, the National Security Council staff uh, with the the consent of their principals can put whatever they want into the briefing book. But at the end of the day, the president of the United States gets to decide what to say and whether he agrees with what's in the briefing book or not. So personally, I was not. Um, scandalized that uh, Trump ignored his briefing book. I wasn't even surprised that Trump ignored his briefing book. Um, it, it is entirely in character and entirely consistent with his approach to Putin and to Russia overall. But I guess my question to you guys, and, and Ben, I'll start with you on this, is, um, is there anything significant uh, in the fact that he was advised by uh, the national security staff not to congratulate um, and what should we take away from the leaking, the fact of the leaking uh, of this confidential advice to the president? 
Well, the leaking is easy. Um, early in the administration, Quinta and I wrote a piece about the presidential oath of office and what happens when uh, large numbers of people all throughout the country, including within the executive branch, uh, don't believe in the integrity of the president's oath of office. And the answer, it turns out, is that it erodes their own sense of obligations to uh, the integrity of executive branch processes and uh, their sense of obligation to keep, say, things private that are normally kept private. And so they do things like leak because uh, they don't feel bound uh, to, you know, to respect processes that are kind of bound together spiritually by uh, the person of the president and the oath that he took. And I think this is an example of that. Um, and there are hundreds and hundreds of other examples of that. It's more norm than exception at this point. Um, it should surprise, of course, nobody that he ignored his briefing book. Briefing involves, uh, you know, that involves things like reading uh, and uh, <laughs> taking information seriously, assimilating information, and there's no evidence that he ever does that. And so why should anyone expect that something as uh, trivial as a briefing book would Im impact his behavior at all? Um, and then finally, uh, it also shouldn't surprise anybody that he congratulates Putin on a rigged election in the context of some genuinely barbaric, strongman, murderous behavior. Uh, he prefers strongmen and dictators to Democrats as a general matter. Uh, his, the, his whole uh, international persona is one of embracing strongmen. Putin is only one example of that, but, you know, uh, the Saudi monarchy, Duterte, Erdogan, uh, I mean, that list is long, and he's pretty consistent about it, and his contempt in life is largely reserved for democratic leaders. Um, and it also reflects the way he behaves at home. So I, I didn't find it surprising at all. I didn't, I agree with you, it wasn't shocking, except as a as a reflection of the shocking nature of his larger character with respect to some of this. And look, and then the final point, which I do feel strongly about, is that, you know, the one, there are very few things Donald Trump is consistent about. One of them is that he does not criticize Putin. And I am not going to sit here and say that's because the Russians have compromise on him. Um, I think, you know, although that is what evidence. John Brennan has now said. But I do think we uh, some explanation of that fact is something that we should all be thinking about. Yeah, I think, honestly, my reaction to seeing that the do not congratulate thing was actually 
I think, Ben, your explanation that he didn't read the notes certainly makes the most sense. The alternate explanation is that putting something in front of him that says do not congratulate is like putting something in front of him that says do not press the red button or do not eat the cookie. And he just has no impulse control. And so, of course, he's going to do that. <laughs> um, but no, I think I I broadly agree. I mean, I think it's... Every time he has one of these instances of either congratulating a dictator um, or ingratiating himself with Putin, we have this moment of shock. And I think it's valuable to remain shocked. But on the other hand, it is absolutely and completely consistent with his posture so far. I mean, especially coming after a week in which the White House was notably slow to... uh, back the UK in its assessment that the Kremlin was likely responsible for the chemical weapons attack in London. Um, It's just, it's sort of, it's part of a larger pattern. Um, I'm not totally sure why this is the thing that has everyone running around with their hair on fire, though don't get me wrong, it is bad. So I think that there are a couple aspects of the fallout from this that are worth focusing on for just a minute. Um, Although I'll say first off that I think what's upsetting about this is not the congratulations, but that it's Trump giving the congratulations. There is a long history that I've actually researched of American presidents congratulating dictators on sham elections. It's something that happens with astonishing regularity. The congratulations are sometimes muted. Sometimes they are accompanied by notations about concerns over the conditions within which the election took place. But the congratulations themselves are just not that unprecedented. What's upsetting people is that it's Trump congratulating Putin, and that goes to his relationship with Russia. Um, So I think going back to the point you made at the beginning, Ben, about leaking and the inevitability of these kinds of leaks, there's been some criticism of this leak, I think, because the information that goes from the White House staff to the president is of particular sensitivity. It's not just your average classified information, at least that's the claim. And some are saying that, look, if you work in the White House and that's how you feel about your president, you should just resign. Don't leak, quit. Um, And so I'd like to get your thoughts on that. And then I think the other interesting piece of fallout is that we now have people like John Brennan, who was uh, counterterrorism coordinator and director of the CIA talking about the possibility of compromise, delving into precisely the question, Ben, that you said uh, people need to focus on, but doing it in a way that f- feels from the outside without access to specialized information feels really, really speculative. And in both these cases, you know, whether it's leaking things that ideally wouldn't be leaked or speculating about things where we don't have public facts, I worry a little bit that we're just contributing to an erosion of norms in terms of our political discourse and the way we talk about national security and the way we handle national security information. But maybe I'm just getting a little too overwrought. No, I don't think you are. So uh, so first of all, uh, I am against speculating on the reason that Trump will not uh, criticize Putin. And in the face of, I mean, Putin literally poisoned somebody the other day in public, you know, and Trump uh, can't be troubled to mention that in his phone conversation. 
I'm against speculating what the nature of the re on what the reason for that is based on facts we don't know. And I don't think it's a good idea to do it. I do think we deserve an answer to that question factually. And, and I think making that distinction and saying, hey, this is something that requires an answer and it requires an explanation. I'm not going to spin conspiracy theories about it or steal dossier theories about it in the absence of harder information. But I do want to know what the answer to that question is. And that's the balance that I would strike. But I, um, but I, I, I do think it's in the nature of having a president who behaves this way that it gives rise to a lot of people scratching their heads and looking for explanations. And some of them are going to be more and less responsible about what facts they're willing to infer than others are. Um, on your second question, look, I, people, I agree, ideally, if you don't have enough respect for the president to behave appropriately within the executive branch. Uh, resignation is probably part, you know, the generally speaking, the right answer. The problem is when you have a president who every day behaves in a way that is corrosive of respect for the executive branch, um, uh, within the executive branch, and I mean corrosive in a like, taking a rasp and just filing away at people's uh, respect every day, um, and it's unrelenting, then what you're saying is the entire executive branch should resign. And that's, you know, unrealistic. It's, you know, even if maybe it's in some sort of platonic sense the right answer, it's not going to happen. And so I'm just describing sociologically what does happen, which is that people... Uh, get outraged and they call the Washington Post and tell them what, what happened that day. And that produces this atmosphere in which a flood of leaks takes place. And you can we can cluck about it and talk about the erosion of norms, and it's not wrong to do that, but it's really important to understand what's going on there, which is that there is not the respect for... Uh, the hierarchy is not demanding the respect that it or behaving in a way that engenders the respect that it then depends upon for its day to day functioning. Yes. And and I guess one question is whether in the post Trump era, these norms will bounce back or whether we're just going to have a lot of leaking of national security information out of administrations the president in the that future. Follows Trump they will disagree. have to come in and reestablish, A, that the executive branch, that the president can behave in a way that calls for the respect of the uh, community that works for him, and B, as a collateral matter to that, can demand that they behave with that respect. And that is going to be one of the big challenges of the next administration, whether it's, you know, Mike Pence picking up the pieces after an impeachment, or uh, of subsequent president of either party following an election. So uh, let's talk a little bit about deal making. Um, deals, deals, deals. Deals, deals, deals. We have the ultimate deal maker in the Oval Office. And, and to demonstrate that to all of us yesterday, when he held uh, an, a highly anticipated bilateral meeting with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, 
who is beginning a three-week tour through the United States to look for investments for Saudi for the Saudi investment fund and also to attract investments into Saudi Arabia. Uh, Trump was showing off some deals. He brought poster boards describing the um, arms sales that are at least on paper under consideration. Uh, for the Saudis to buy from the United States. And he described the billions of dollars in arms sales as peanuts. This is peanuts for the Saudis, Uh, but was very proud to take credit for them, even though uh, it's been reported that most of these deals, if not all of them, were uh, on the table before Trump took office. Um, So setting aside the sort of formal government-to-government deals that Trump was talking about yesterday, there's been quite a bit of reporting just in the last 24 hours about other kinds of deals involving the Trump administration and uh, governments in the Gulf and their friends in the United States. We had two reports yesterday, one from The Intercept and one from The New York Times uh, on these issues. The Intercept reported that Jared Kushner the president's son-in-law, engaged in some private uh, deal-making of his own that may even have included the intercept, sort of walked right up to the line, but didn't explicitly state that Kushner may have given the Saudi crown prince the names of Saudi royal family members who opposed him uh, in some private conversations that took place in the kingdom last October, and that he was having all these conversations and not sharing the contents or consulting on them with uh, the national security staff or others in the administration. And then as well, yesterday, the New York Times reported on our friend George Nader, the Lebanese-American businessman, and his uh, partner, business partner, on some great deals, RNC Vice Chair Elliot Broidy, who um, apparently were part of a broader uh, collective effort by um, at least supporters of the UAE, like George Nader, to uh, push for policies friendly to the United Arab Emirates in Washington. And the New York Times reports that uh, Broidy had meetings with Trump in which he was pushing him to fire Rex Tillerson, pushing him to take the Emirati side in its dispute with Qatar, pushing the president to have private meetings with the Emirati crown prince outside the White House, um, and also that these two, George Nader and Elliot Broidy, were apparently using some money that was laundered through a Canadian business uh, to fund a couple of think tanks in Washington to hold conferences that were very hostile to Qatar, UAE's adversary in this dispute within the Gulf. Um, So it seems as though Uh, these matters are now becoming increasing focal points for the Mueller investigation and that the Mueller investigation seems to be moving beyond Russian interference in the election in a narrow sense and looking more broadly at influence on the campaign and on the Trump administration and starting to follow the money. So thoughts? Quinta, you want to start? Yeah. Well, to begin with, speaking of deals, in fact, uh, Nader has made a deal of his own and that he apparently has been given immunity um, by the Mueller team in exchange for his full cooperation. Uh, he's now testified, I think we know, at least twice about all this. 
Um, which is, I think, uh, a sign that Mueller is taking this really seriously. Um, one of the things that I've found interesting about this angle of the Mueller investigation is that we've all been thinking, or I think many of us have been thinking of the investigation in, in the sense of, you know, was there collusion? Was there collusion? And another way to sort of conceptualize it is how much this investigation is showing us, not even in the the conclusions, um, but just as it goes, how much it's rooting up in sort of corruption and money moving in perhaps unsavory ways. In I mean, we already talked about Facebook, um, in the lobbying industry, in the sort of movement of money across the globe. And this, I think, is another example of that. So I would strike a note of caution on all of this, um, which is, you know, the, for months and months now, uh, we've had all kinds of stories about how the Mueller investigation is zeroing in on X or Y or Z, uh, and it looks like it's getting further from the core Russia questions. And then Mueller indicts people or reaches plea agreements, and those plea agreements and indictments are focused relentlessly on the core Russia issues, right? Which is to say, Russian interference in the election, false statements by uh, Trump campaign or transition officials about uh, their interactions with Russians, and uh, money laundering uh, involving uh, Russian and Ukrainian money and the like. And so, uh, you know, they are clearly asking questions in this UAE context. Uh, and um, they are, I wouldn't be surprised if they've, you know, uh, if they're, they're clearly looking at some stuff that goes beyond the uh, original focus of the investigation. Uh, on the other hand, remember that uh, George Nader comes to them through this issue involving uh, this meeting in the Seychelles, uh, which is, of course, a core Russia collusion and back channel issue. And so it's really not clear to me how much this, in fact, does reflect an expansion of subject matter and how much this is just some of the individuals who, uh, you know, who have come to the Russia uh, investigation because of core Russia uh, contacts issues, you know, have broader stories to tell and the investigation is following up on those. And I think we won't know that until we see not merely what kind of deals George Nader was doing, but what kind of indictments Mueller does or doesn't bring based on them. Yeah, I mean, all of that makes perfect sense to me. My point is more just how I've been struck by when you say the broader stories those people have to tell separate from any indictments that may come out of that, just how broad and how completely crazy those stories are. When I, I you think that's bring right. on to your campaign and transition and administration all the best people, only the best people, you get only the best stories. <laughs> only the best money laundering. Yeah, and I, I think, too, it's striking to me reading through these stories that it's not just that this is the way Trump works and this is the way Jared Kushner works, that this is normal way of doing business for them. But, you know, that 
this guy, Elliot Broidy, who has been very involved in Republican Party politics for a long time, who's presumably a reasonably savvy and much more establishment guy. This is also the way he does business. He does kind of this um, exchange of favors at the least with George Nader and the government of the UAE, where he's carrying water for them with the president of the United States in exchange for what he clearly believes will be and turns out to be favorable contracting arrangements for his company. And that this is all just going on, you know, every single day that so it's not just what it says about Trump. It's what it says about where our political establishment is. And Mueller investigation aside, it seems to me that we have a lot more to learn here about the way in which um, our political elites have been acting with respect to the public interest and the national interest. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, another angle on this is the the Manafort and Gates money laundering. I mean, they they laundered what it was like thirty million dollars or something. Ben, you can check me on that, but. By all accounts, it really seems like if they hadn't gone and, you know, enmeshed themselves with the Trump campaign, they might have gotten away with it. All right. Time for object lessons, Ben. My object lesson is uh, um, uh, it's a bit of a non-object. It's uh, uh, quite (laughs) ethereal. It is Mueller's self-image. And... um, Over the weekend, uh, John Lovett of Pod Save America fame uh, uh, tweeted a plaintive question, which was, will we ever know all that Bob Mueller knows? And uh, in response, Quinta and I wrote a uh, lengthy piece uh, this week, which, you know, basically makes the argument that this question depends on how Mueller sees the nature of his role and that if he sees it the way an ordinary orthodox prosecutor sees the role, there is really a chance we may never learn what he knows to the extent that he doesn't bring indictments against people. On the other hand, to the extent that he adopts a more uh, capacious understanding of the reporting function of his role, either the way Jaworski, Leon Jaworski, during Watergate referred matters to Congress for possible impeachment, or more flamboyantly, the way Ken Starr did, uh, or the way Jim Comey last uh, in the summer of 2016 publicly reported on the conduct of Hillary Clinton in the context of declining to bring uh, cases against her in connection with the email matters, Um, we may learn a great deal. And all of that depends on this uh, ethereal fact that we don't really know the parameters of the answer to, which is how does Mueller see his function and how does he imagine the role that he is supposed to play to the extent that he is not going to bring uh, indictments against people. And so I... um, want to pose the question uh, to the rational security listenership, who does Bob Mueller want to be? <laughs> what does he want to be when he grows up? No, like, who does he imagine himself the, to what's be? What's the inner Bob Mueller? 
I don't. I think what we've learned is that the inner Bob Mueller is is elusive. <laughs> well, and the inner Bob Mueller, we all assume when we talk about this, we all assume that we know something about that. We assume people refer to the Mueller report as though we know it's coming. We don't know it's coming, right? People refer to, you know, when he when he describes what's going on, when he tells us what's he's going on, then that makes a huge assumption about what the inner Bob Mueller actually is planning. And I don't think the facts that bear on that are in evidence at all. Wow. You know, in the sort of narrative arc of our national saga, now you, you're raising the prospect of a sort of unconsummated romance or a story arc that just falls from its climax. And that that would be so disappointing. I mean, how do you make a good movie out of that? No, exactly. We, we all we all want there to be a story and an end to the story. But I think we need to it's like a Kitsia negative capability. We need to live with uncertainty. All right. Well, while we are living with uncertainty, uh, I do want you all to know that you can count on rational security to to be here and reinforce your anxieties week on week. <laughs> but, uh, rationally. but rationally, as rationally as ever we can. And rational security is, uh, as it continue as it has been, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on Facebook for now. Anyway, we're not we haven't deleted our account yet. You can also follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Uh, our audio engineer this week is the inimitable Matthew Kahn. Our producer is the ever patient Jen Patia Howell. And our music this week is provided by George Nader and the Singing Sources. Ooh, very nice. I, I tried. I'm no Shane, but I tried. Uh, so until next week, I'm Tamara Wittes, and thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.